You're listening to a teaching from Vintage Church LA. This week, we're hearing from a special guest speaker. Now, as we go to the word, Paul begins here in verse 7 by saying, of this gospel, he's unpacking for us the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. So he's talking about his particular calling as an apostle. He's recounting his own journey. Verse 8, though I am the very least of all the saints, no doubt he's recalling how he was one time a persecutor of the church, the book of Acts we know. And we can also say, along with the Apostle Paul, that Christianity is deeply personal. Christianity is about God and me, my relationship to him. It's about what God has done for me, how he has rescued me from sin, that he has made me a new creation. This is what we profess. In fact, this is one of the distinct things about Christianity, that it's not just about following certain principles. It's not about the four noble truths or eightfold path. It's not about the five pillars. Christianity claims that it is a relationship with the living God, that God knows us, that he loves us, and he cares about the details of our life, even to the point of knowing the number of hair on your head. That's how intricately he is involved in your life. That's one of the things that we proclaim that is unique about Christ. But listen, listen to how Paul says, this grace was given me that I might preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And here, let's be honest a little bit. As a church, we can be a little guilty. As Christians, we can be guilty of reducing the unsearchable riches. What even is that? The unsearchable riches of Christ into merely my thoughts and my feelings. Or even what I like about my church or what I don't like about my church. We can get so myopic, narrow-minded. We limit the vastness of God and the richness of Christ to simply my story, what God is up to in my life. Paul is saying, no, 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 no. There's actually a larger story here that we are a part of. We're one of the pieces to the puzzle. And he's beginning to unpack it. He says, yes, I have a relationship with God. I even have a calling. I'm not just a saint, but I've been given this distinct call to be an apostle, a minister. But it's also part of this bigger story that I've been called to. It's part of what God is doing in the world namely telling the good news of Jesus Christ, announcing it to the cosmos, preaching to the Gentiles, to the nations, and all of creation. In fact, the local church, churches like Vintage and Tapestry, I would dare claim today that we are the hope of the world. And really, it sounds audacious, but I hope to convince you that it is no exaggeration. That is truly who you are, because the one you follow. Let's continue here. Paul tells us that there is a great deal of darkness in the world. Where? Well, he's preaching, and he brings up this idea of light. He says, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things. That's verse 9. So to bring to light, to illuminate, to impart light, suggests that there is darkness to contend with. You don't shine light on light and call it light. There is darkness, and therefore, he is the light. And our world, if you think about it, and just maybe a casual glance at the headlines, I mean, we, I I sense we're in trouble to some degree. Our world doesn't feel as safe as it once used to. There's bloodshed everywhere. There's a war that is largely forgotten at the moment. 
We see violence everywhere on the streets, crime that gets ignored, inflation is about to hit double digits, gas prices, especially here in Santa Monica, I don't know how you guys do it. Um, and this darn COVID thing, when is it going away? It keeps coming back. I just actually got COVID like three weeks ago. We were on a trip to Colorado, ruined our vacation. You know how for two, three years, you're like getting tested every day and it's come back negative? And then when it finally comes back positive, you're like, what the heck is this? You have to take it again to make sure. And I saw a little faint line on the second test, so I was trying to convince myself that was a false test. Um, but yes, COVID is still around, and it looks like the county might mandate masking again, which is kind of interesting. You know, over at our church, almost everyone is masked. Maybe it's just because of downtown. I, I don't know. Over here, you guys are free and, and liberated in the Lord. Praise the Lord. Um, but our world can be in trouble uh, for many reasons. And personally speaking, there are many concerns and challenges that each individual here might be dealing with. Perhaps you're dealing with the death of a loved one. That's always difficult. Perhaps you're dealing with the financial crisis in your life. There's a sickness. Maybe you've heard the news of cancer for yourself or for someone you love. And you're dealing with broken relationships, people that you once loved and hung out with all the time. It just doesn't feel the same anymore. Life can be awful at times, sometimes brutal. But we humans, we are meaning-making machines. So we have to try to make sense of where we are, how to make sense of how we have arrived here in this historic moment, in this present time. And we have an entire discipline, a philosophy of history to help us kind of navigate to try to make sense of it. If you are in the East, you might say history and time is cyclical. There is no beginning or end. It just kind of repeats itself. If you're of the West, maybe you are of more persuasion that it's linear. After all, there seems to be what's called a great big bang, and then the sun will one day run out, so life as we know it will change. I, I think the Bible would contend that it can be either. Uh, in fact, uh, we know that in Genesis there is the beginning, and, and with the uh, coming of Christ, we know that there will be an end. But Solomon also reminds us that there is nothing new under the sun. I think the Bible can encompass the human experience. But more to the point, if your temperament is necessarily more negative, you might share in Macbeth's sentiment, who says, life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury. I mean, we get mad about a lot of things. But in the end, it signifies nothing. That there is no point. There is no perfect purpose. This is a profoundly pessimistic view of life. So others have suggested, no, 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 why be so negative? There's a lot of good in life that we should focus on. In fact, life is getting better. Time is proving that life is getting, uh, it's improving. Humanists, uh, progressives amongst us, we would suggest that the future is bright. Education, technology, consider the longevity of the human life. People used to live to like 40, but now they're living up to like 80 and 90. There's so much more that we can do as we get older, so let's be more positive. How do you make sense of the world? Right now in your minds, how do you make sense of this present time? Where is it going? Where did it come from? How do you make sense of this present time? Does your Christianity hold out any hope in explaining the mess that we find ourselves in? Does your Christianity have an answer to the question, what is this all about? Well, I think Christianity would answer that question with recognition of the deep brokenness that we find our world in, the injustice, the pain, and the loss. 
But there is this hope that it speaks to, a hope in the midst of the most difficult of human experiences, that we can hope, and this hope is otherworldly, but it's enough to sustain you and empower you and give you, uh, give you the energy and the strength to overcome whatever you go through. How do you make sense of the world? Paul, he says in here, we're still in verse nine, he says he's called to preach or bring the light, verse nine, revealing for everyone what is the plan. And I think if anything, if you don't hear any, anything that I say today, I want you to hear these words, that God has a plan, that God has a plan for our world. It is at times mysterious. We can't really understand why things happen the way they do, but it is still there. And notice where it is. It's in God, the word of God says. It's in the mind of God. The world is not out of control. It is still in the palm of his hand. If you find yourself saying, what the heck is going on? You're not alone. I have found myself saying that again and again. When COVID started, this is when it was known early on as the Wuhan virus, I remember walking just down the street at my home. I live up in uh, La Crescenta. It's mostly Caucasians and Koreans. You can tell by the stores, lots of Korean stores up there. Um, and we were just, you know, the only thing you can do was kind of like walk around at that time. You can like meet with friends or family. So we were just taking our daily stroll with my family of five. And I remember like this truck that came, upon, came towards us as we were walking and slowed down to make eye contact with me. And then he expressed his disdain for me and my kind by giving me the middle finger. That was the first time in a long time, maybe from, I remember just joking around in grade school, but experiencing something like that. And I was appalled. I was shocked. My family witnessed it. I was lost for words. I was struggling to make sense of the world that we're finding ourselves in. What the heck is going on? I don't know if you realize this, but the number is 339% nationwide hate and crimes against Asian American communities. And very often, that number is inflicted on the most vulnerable in our community, the elderly, uh, women, who are just minding their uh, business, walking down the street, going to go, go fetch groceries or running an errand out of nowhere, very often just blindly being attacked, sometimes leading to many deaths. And let me tell you, there is amongst our communities where we feel frustrated and helpless that these crimes are not being taken very seriously, that people go in and out of jail without much consequence. And it is a very frustrating experience for a lot of us. But because we are the people of God and he is our ultimate and final resource, we can learn to trust him. We can learn to see that he is still in control and that the plan that he has, the flourishing of all humanity, is in him. L listen to how he adds here this very last phrase, who created all things. What's he doing? Why use that description of God? He's trying to remind us that this is not man's world, that this is God's world, that he is still in charge. So if you're going to understand anything about this present moment in history, you have to begin there that this is God's world, that this belongs to God. And if ever there was a moment in humanity we need to hear this, I believe it is the present time. We are rather so clever. We think we know it all. We split the atom. We can send things up to Mars and 
sometime soon, maybe even a whole civilization up there, if Elon Musk has anything to do with that. We can carry the world's information just on our fingertips. Wow, we have accomplished quite a bit. And so we feel as though we are the masters of the universe, that this is our world. Satan's first and recurring temptation has always been, you will be like God. That is our temptation, to be God for ourselves. This is what the Bible calls sin. And this is what brings about envy, hatred, bloodshed, war, all things that are foul and abominable as a result of our desire to be like God. But still, it doesn't mean that God is not in control, that he doesn't know what's going on. He is still in control of the world and in creation. And no matter how terrible things may get for us, how much the church may be under attack, I don't know if you know this, even as we speak today, 144 nations continue to persecute Christian believers. They don't have the freedom that you have. They don't have this courtyard where you can come and be greeted with a smile, with a good cup of coffee and a donut. They don't have that. They can't come in here and express their love for God. It's all hidden. I remember I had an opportunity to go to North Korea. That is one of the darkest places in the world. Do you you know that at one time, North Korea in 1908, what's considered the Jerusalem of the East, so many Asian Christians would go to Pyongyang to get trained and equipped to become missionaries. Today, it has been without the gospel, without the church for over 60 years, without hearing the light of God, seeing the presence of God in one place. It does something to that environment. It was such a dark place. All I can do was go around crying, singing, this is, this, this is a, what's that song? City of our God? No, you're the God of the city. That's a long time ago. Do you guys sing that here? <laughs> you're the God of the city. That's all I can do, quietly utter those words professing that one day it will be the Jerusalem of the East again. But there are so many Christians who are being persecuted today. And no matter how much we are challenged, but here in the West, and there are quite a few things to consider, the declining of the church attendance, that seems to be universal across American churches. We're in a sort of a cultural battle with CRT, council culture, um, Christian nationalism, political division within the church. And of course, we see Scandal after scandal, where famous pastors are kind of giving Jesus a black eye. But even then, may I remind you, God is in control, and he has a plan. Even if we inflict self-harm, God is still in control, and he will rule and reign because he is in control. This has always been the witness of the church, if you think about it. Isaiah the prophet when you get to his passage, he has this vision. But remember the circumstances where he's prophesying. The king, the one good king that Israel had, Uzziah, he is dead. The good king is dead. And then he starts to talk about how even in that year of his death, he has this vision of seeing God sitting on his throne. This is right before the people of God will be sent into exile. This is before when the temple will be desecrated. This is before... Um, families will be separated, and yet Isaiah sees the king of kings, the God of the universe, sitting on his throne. Hundreds of years later, John the Revelator will have a similar vision. The earth, the world is on fire again. Christian persecution like never before. And he has a vision at that time. And what does he see? Again, he sees the king sitting on his throne and the angel singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. That has always been 
our, our claim, our witness that God is sitting on the throne. So let me say to you, look up, for he is sitting on his throne. He is in control. He is not subject to the whims of history. He's not going to be defeated by CRT. He is not going to be defeated by any enemy of the church. He is the rock of ages. He is above it all. He is, he is great and has an eternal purpose for his people. Now, this begs the question, what is this plan? What is this plan to which Paul is speaking to? What is this plan? Verse 11, that, he says this, this was, so that is the plan, this plan that he's talking about, was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice the past tense there. The plan of God, whatever it might be, it has everything to do with Jesus. Jesus, who is the true light of the world, will shine his light on darkness. Jesus would himself say when he came to this earth that he is the light of the world. Whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have light of life. There is no plan. There is no light apart from Jesus, the Bible says. And Paul will summarize this in the same letter, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. The plan is to unite heaven and earth. That is the plan of God. Just as the way it was at the beginning in the garden in Genesis 1 and 2, before Genesis 3 when heaven and earth was wrenched apart by sin, by human sinfulness. But the Bible's story is largely his desire hasn't changed. It remains. He desires for heaven and earth to be together again. So what does he offer? First, he offers, especially through the Old Testament, the temple and animal sacrifice. It was once a tabernacle, but once they reach, reach the promised land, it becomes a temple. And it's in the temple where heaven and earth will overlap. The temple was designed to remind the people of God that they were back in the garden, with the center being the holy of holies, where God's presence dwelt. But therein lies a problem. He offers his presence, but what remains is still sin, because God's presence is holy, perfect, and pure, and just. But the earth space, sinful space, is full of sin and corruption and evil. The problem cannot be resolved apart from what he offers, which is sacrifice of animals. Somehow this idea that when the animal dies and bleeds, it absorbs human sin. That sacrifice becomes enough so that people can have a relationship and enter that clean space. But what we realize as the story is being un uh, unfolded, as a plan is being revealed, in time, in the fullness of time, that this would be simply a shadow of the substance to come. And what is that substance? It's literally the flesh of God in Christ Jesus. The Gospel of John tells us he came, he tabernacled amongst us. Jesus would himself say, I am the temple. Destroy this body and in three days I will, it will rise again. He is literally saying, I am the connection point between heaven and earth. Where I am is the presence of God. And you can see it in his ministry. He taught with such authority as he was speaking on behalf of God. When he laid hands, he drove out demons. That which was evil could not stand his presence. Sickness and death could not overcome him because he is the very embodiment of heaven. Heaven came down 
in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is why we worship him. But Jesus was not just a temple. He was also the temple sacrifice. Jesus at the cross absorbed the sins of humanity, your sin, my sin. He is called the Lamb of God because he was sacrificed on our behalf. And listen to how Paul in Colossians summarizes it. He says, in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. There again, the mission of God, the purpose of God, making peace by the blood of his cross. The secret to his plan is the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Christ has secured for you and me victory over sin and darkness, even over sin and death. But not only did it secure that victory for you as an individual, this was the beginning of the restoration of all of creation and the cosmos. It wasn't just restoring us to God and allowing us to come into the presence of God, but it was all the earth, all of creation, the cosmos itself being restored. The death of Jesus, the first drops of his blood, would go have far-reaching consequences. It would reverberate throughout the universe to the point where the vision that we get is a lamb lying with the lion, no longer needing to devour each other. The vision that we get is the sun will expire because we don't need it anymore because God's glory will radiate and we'll be fully like him. All of the cosmos touched by this mission of restoration by the blood of Jesus Christ. He will unite heaven and earth. That has never changed. And then, and then this idea when Paul, when uh, John tells us that we will be united in heaven. See, a lot of us, I think, we, we have this language. We're so used to this language of like, when we die, we'll be with God and we're going to go to heaven. And I think maybe you can deduce that by just kind of looking at different pieces. But nowhere you actually do you find in the Bible that phrase, going to heaven. A better understanding of how things end is the earth, it's, it remains where it is, but heaven comes down. Heaven comes and becomes an overlap space in that Venn diagram. When things all end, the new earth and new heaven will be captured in the middle, and we will occupy that space, what John calls in Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem, the new city, where there is no more death and no more sin. And that regeneration will touch everything, the entire cosmos. That's where we will be. Jesus' message is in be good so you can go to heaven. That was never his message. It wasn't beyond this religious quest so that you can be a better person. Discover the principles of life and the universe so that you can become your full actualized self. That was never his message. It was never just be more moral. It was never about just social justice, try to bring justice to this world. It was always uniting heaven and earth. And in uniting heaven and earth, all that we hope for will be realized. That was Jesus' main message. So what does he say? He says, first words out of his mouth in Matthew is, repent. This isn't just ask for forgiveness, but change the way you think about life. Turn around. In light of what you have received, in light of the coming king, change the way you think about how the world works, the plan that God has for you. Change and go in a different direction. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
in Christ, we see the kingdom of heaven, the very first fruits. Or he told his disciples to pray, may your kingdom come. Let it be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Because he, what, the idea is that we as his followers, Christ followers, that we would embody his love and his truth in such a way, heaven's influence will be the currents that flows out of us. That it would be, it would influence and impact wherever we go. That we, as the people of God, become open heavens for people to experience. So again, to summarize, the story of the Bible is that one time, heaven and earth was one and the same, in one place. It was totally united, but sin has put it asunder. But God has not changed his heart, his plan. It remains the same, and he has brought, reconciled heaven and earth through his, through his son, Jesus Christ, and he will one day restore all of creation and all of the cosmos through his son. I'm a little out of breath, okay? Um, You think that story is good. I want to tell you it's even more incredulous. And this is the part that I've been just wanting to build up to because this is too good to be true. Listen, God wants to bring heaven through local churches like you and me. Look at verse 10. This is mind-boggling. He says this, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is so glorious. This is what I would say is like nosebleed stuff. It's like way too much for my pay grade here. But I'm going to bring in C.S. Lewis here because he's always helpful, right? British, right? They're always helpful. Um, He, in his book, Mere Christianity, if you had a chance to read, he sort of summarizes the Christian experience this way. Now, the whole offer which Christianity makes is this, that we can, if we let God have his way, come to share in the life of Christ. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing more. You would expect to read something like that from a book called Mere Christianity. The whole goal of the local church, your church, my church, is then to produce little Christ, what the Bible calls disciples of Christ. That is literally the whole goal. And listen, it stands to reason if we as little Christ are scattered throughout the city, would we not make a difference? If we are embodying God's love and truth, if we are not repelling people with the way we talk about truth, and in the way we are compassionate and kind, and we're drawing people in, doesn't it stand to reason that you and I would change our environment? That the people that we interact with that they would experience more of God in their lives. This is why the audacious claim that you, the local church, believers like you and I, young, old, experienced, inexperienced, that you are the hope of the world because you are little Christ. That's literally what Christian means, a little Christ. And if you're embodying his love and his compassion and his kindness, his gentleness, the fruit of the Spirit is overflowing in your life. People are around you and they sense something is different about you, the way you're married, the way you spend your money, the way you're so generous with time and your resources. Doesn't it stand to reason that people will start to ask and wonder and how they can learn about this God that you follow? That is why we can make this claim 
that we are the hope of the world. Not because what we're capable of, what we have accomplished, but because who we are, we are little Christ. The local church, by God's design, is the hope of the world. Paul says God's ultimately going to restore all things in heaven and earth through Christ and through his church. The church is like a pilot plant. It's the first sort of taste, first fruits, the Bible's language, that is going to reconcile the entire universe. Case in point, Paul gives us an example of this thing called Gentiles and Jews in chapter 2. And he says that the walls of hostility, that which is our natural barriers, that divides us, and look at the world and the ways, the many ways we are divided, that which is natural for us to divide over, he says that wall of hostility has been broken. No longer do you see yourselves as Jews and Gentiles, as Europeans or Asians or as Americans or South Americans. You see yourself first and foremost as the people of God, that you belong to him, that you have the same common heavenly father who loves you and who cares about all of God's people. That has a way of disarming you. That has a way of blurring differences in a way that is honoring and good. We are a pilot plan. Now, you might ask, can we have racial harmony apart from Jesus? Can we have peace and love in community? Can there be good work apart from Jesus? Absolutely. But let me tell you, it is rather incidental. By God's common grace and his general revelation, we can experience goodness of creation and goodness of other people. We still bear marks, image, the marks of God being created in his image. But listen, it is not by design. It's almost accidental if it happens. It's only the institution of the church where we have been given a mandate to reconcile heaven and earth, to embody Christ's love and his truth. And not only that, we have the power of the blood that we can declare to people there is an answer, there is a hope to your biggest issue, which is in your economic situation, which is in your relationship with your parents, which is in your health concerns. It's actually sin that resides in your heart. We have an answer. We alone have an answer because we have the blood of Christ blood of Christ that can forgive us of our sins. Do you see, do you see the privilege of being part of his church? That we get to play our small role in this great grand plan that God has. God says, Paul says here that this, this wisdom, the manifold wisdom of God, this plan, there are so many ways it's expressed through the church Manifold is literally multicolored. And if you remember the technicolor uh, jacket, was it a robe of Joseph? Okay, in the same way, there's variations, different grades and nuances. It's different, it's remarkable. But there's so many ways the wisdom of God is demonstrated. And the way you carry truth, and the way you love, and the way you forgive, and the way you value life, and the way you care for the sick, the marginalized and the way you fight for justice, the way you lend your voice to the voiceless. So many ways. I mean, consider how you came, you personally, how you came to Christ, 
Who led you? What was it about his or her life that was compelling that you wanted to follow the same God? Was it someone's marriage? You thought it was so perfect and the way they were in the Lord, you just wanted something similar. Was it in the way they understood and held together the worldview like it's coherent, it makes sense. There's a beginning and the end. It's not all useless. And What was it that compelled you? Is it the way they served their community, the way they show kindness when they could have easily retaliated? Was it the way they forgave, the way they were generous? There are manifold, manifold ways to show the wisdom of God, how Christ, heaven joining earth, how we can demonstrate that wisdom in the way we live our lives. And that's not all. Okay, this really hits a bit of a crescendo here. He says, I, I want you to know who's watching the church. He says, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm. This is speaking about angels and demons. Elsewhere in the Bible, 1 Peter 1, we're told the angels are watching us. And not just watching, but learning. In this passage, we learn about a story. I mean, Peter's unpacking the gospel again, just like Paul. And he has this funny little line at the end. The angels, they long to look. The Greek word for that is epithemia, which means deeply craving, longing. One author calls it standing on tiptoe to watch what happens. In other words, angels, and we can't explain it. We're not, this, I mean, you can do a class on angelology. You still won't understand everything. But somehow, someway, the angels are watching. They know about God's majesty. They know about God's power. They've seen it. They sit and they sing holy, holy, holy. But there's something about the way God loves us in Christ Jesus that is inexhaustible. They keep looking. It doesn't make sense, but it's wonderful. It's beautiful. They keep watching to see how he loves us. They're amazed by it. They can't stop looking. It's not, it's not just the angels here. It's also the powers of darkness. Jesus tells Peter in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church has its share of challenges. Let's be honest tyrannical regimes throughout the world, autocratic governments that does not let Christians worship. There's persecution everywhere. Of course, there is excessive, expressive individualism in the West that's hurting the church. There's increased polarization everywhere. The hell will throw the kitchen sink at us. But let me be absolutely clear by the authority of God's word. It will not prevail. Hell will not prevail. The gates of Hades will not prevail. And let me just tell you, I think we got it all wrong. Gates are not offensive. They remain in place. They fortify a place. They stay grounded. We have nothing to fear as the people of God. The church, brothers and sisters, the church is on the offensive. And we must be marching into all the hells in the world because of the power of Christ's blood that we have. We must proclaim and claim back every square inch of this earth and say it belongs to Jesus. Every square inch. The storms of the the we the, the gates of hell will never prevail against us. It will it will never prevail against us. It's time, church, to destroy the devil's work, to take back strongholds. There's not a life that cannot be reclaimed for Jesus. There's not a sin that is greater than God's grace. He can forgive. He can bring back the dead from life. There is new life in creation, new creation that is happening under God's kingdom. That 
is our message to the world. The gates of hell will not prevail. We will prevail. And so I tell you this morning, look up. Look up and see the risen king sitting on his throne. In verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence to our faith in him. Be bold. Be confident. Do not be ashamed of your faith. You follow the true God. You love the true story. So let me ask you as a way of closing, do you know who you are? Do you know who you belong to? You are the saints of God. You are his church. You belong to God. You belong to his church. You are the sons and daughters of the high king. You are more than conquerors. One day you will rule the angels. No wonder they're watching us. There is power in the church. There is the presence of God we have access to. You know, there's this number that's out there. 81% is the number. Posters ask church people, do you need to go to church to be a strong Christian, to have a good relationship with God? And 81% of the people ask, say, yes, because it's a personal relationship. You can be a strong Christian without going to church. But let me tell you, by the authority of today's word, Paul knows of no religion like that. You don't just belong to God. You belong to the people of God, to his church. You don't just live so that you can have a happy life with two and a half kids and a white picket fence. You are living on mission, on purpose. And that is to declare that God is here and heaven and earth is found in him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Thanks for joining us for another week. We'd love to connect with you at one of our gatherings or online at vintagechurchla.com.